You are listening to the Riverside Community Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.riversideconnect.org. Yes, yes, we just can't get enough. That's what we're talking about. If you're a guest, by the way, I don't think I ever introduced myself. Bill Ellis is my name, and I'm so glad you're here to worship with us. In this season of Lent, we've been talking about enough. Do we have enough? Do we live with a sense that we have enough? Or are we uh, under the compulsion that we just got to have more, got to have more, got to have more? So um, as we, in this season of Lent, where we learn to do without, the prayer that I have for all of us is that we gain that sense that in giving up something, it's not like I lose something, I gain something more because I have enough. God is enough for me. We... um, um, Charles Schwab did a uh, survey of young adults, 18 to 26, I believe it was, asking them, what were the biggest surprises that you found when you got out on your own? What was the biggest surprise you found, you discovered, when you left home and got out on your own? By the way, young people, you think this message, this series doesn't apply to you, please, the sooner you get this message right, the better off your life is for the rest of your life. I want to tell you that right now. The number one surprise that young people discover when they got out on their own is how expensive the cost of living really was. Yeah, when you, you have to buy your own food, you have to pay your own bills, you've got to put the own, your own, uh, you know, pay for the gas you put in that car and pay for the car and all that. It's a shock. It's a shock for most young people. And that's the number one thing they discovered. The second one was the number of financial decisions you really have to make. The number of financial decisions. And where do they learn to make financial decisions? I, I don't think that it's taught in school. And I would guess that very many don't learn it at home. Uh, they learn it through the school of hard knocks. And the best thing to do is learn it the right way rather than learning it through the decisions, the mistakes that you make. They uh, realize how difficult it is to pay those bills and then the, uh, the challenges of finding a job. So all of those things really hit a young person when they leave home. It's a real wake up. Uh, that's when you become an adult, when you get out there on your own. And so our, our prayer, our challenge for all of us is that we get off on the right foot, that you learn that you live with enough, then you'll always have enough. But if you don't live with a sense of enough, you'll never have enough. Does that make sense to you? And... Um, uh, there's this idea that, you know, God, God provides us with a certain amount of blessing. In other words, this is the level of God's provision. Say, if, if I drew a line and say, this is the line, which is the level of God's provision in my life, then I need to live underneath that level of God's provision. So my bills, my whatever, you know, God bless me with a job that I earn this much or an income that's this level. I'm, I need to learn to live at this level. What happens is when we get into debt, it's almost as if we say to God, God, I don't believe that your level of provision for me is enough. I want more than what you have provided for me. So what we're trying to learn here is how do we live within the level of God's provision for us, living with a sense of enough, and then we always have enough to be able to be used by God in a way that God blesses us. There are a couple scholars, uh, professors at Exeter College University in the UK, uh, Stephen Lay and Paul Webley are their names, and they're experts in the psychology of economics. 
the psychology of economics. They talk about two ways that people see the role that money plays in our lives. And they see it as money is a tool and money is a drug. Money is a tool. It's no surprise that money is a tool. We, we, money is, is useful. We need it to be able to pay the bills, put food in our stomachs, clothes on our backs, roof over our heads, all those things. Uh, and before we had money and currency like uh, dollars and change that we use today, uh, the currency that people used was, was goods that they were able to make or provide themselves, that they bartered. You know, if you were a farmer, your currency was the crops that you had and you could trade uh, say, you know, a bag of corn to somebody that was a blacksmith so that you could buy whatever you need to, to you know, cover to, to the, the machine or the, the tool that you need for your animals. So, so the currency prior to cash, prior to what we use, it was just everybody had to barter. You had to trade something quid pro quo. I have something, I'll give it to you and we'll trade. Um, so, so that's the idea that money is a tool. It's a necessary tool, and, uh, and it's an easy way to make exchanges of something that we have so that we can get something that you have, and it's a win-win for both people when that money is exchanged. Jesus talked about that in the parable of the talents when uh, he talks about the master who gives his, his servants a certain amount of money, and he says to them, put this money to work until I come back because... This is a tool for you to use to invest. But Leon Webley argued that the, the tool theory of money doesn't explain why people become so obsessed with money beyond its useful purpose. In other words, why is it that people who are already rolling in money always still want more? Why do people whose lives are already comfortable still make sacrifices in other areas, sacrifices that might damage their friendships or their families. They might still be workaholics, though they have enough money to be able to live comfortably, and, and, they, and they hurt their emotional health, and finance, just to get more, especially when they appear to be you know, dollars that, that they don't really need. And so what Lee and Webley say is that money provokes people to do bizarre behavior that can't easily be explained to them in terms of money simply being a tool. If it was just a tool, then you have a certain amount that you need to get what you have to get what you need. But when it's a drug, you never have enough. You never have enough. So they say that money provides that purpose for people. It's a drug. They say that it's just it acts like a drug on your brain and it challenges it changes the way we feel even though it doesn't have, like food, a biological purpose for us, the more we get, it changes us. It makes us feel better. It makes us feel good, even though the more we have, we don't even need it, or it won't be really useful for us. It's just chasing after money for the sake of money. And so they, they argue very convincingly that money is not just a tool, that money is also a drug. 1 Timothy 6 says, But people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. So replace that line, people who want to be rich, who long to get rich, with the phrase, people who get artificially relaxed with alcohol and drugs fall into temptation and are trapped by all kinds of foolish and harmful desires that plunge them. You can see the parallel when we exchange those drugs and money or drugs and alcohol for, for money. So, so money is a tool 
but it's also a drug. And the biblical language for that is that money is a servant or money is an idol. So is money going to be your servant? Is money going to be something, a tool that you use for God? Or is money going to be an idol that you bow down to, that you end up worshiping? And so the great question is, how am I using my money? Is it, is it, is it a tool for me or is it becoming a lethal drug? Ecclesiastes 5.10 says, Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with all its income. This too is meaningless. So how great would it be if you and I, you and me, could get freed up from this idea that money is, a, is like a drug for us and we could use money as a tool for us and for God's purposes So today what I want to do is we're going to take a crash course on God's way to you to help us to keep money as a tool and not allow it to become a drug for us. And God's way is called generosity. Generosity is the antidote to using money as a drug. And so I want to I want us to do that. We're going to take a look at how God imprinted generosity on the minds of his people as he was developing them. They were freed slaves. He developed them into the people of God. And he wanted to make sure that they would not become like the Egyptians who had formerly enslaved them. He, they, it was a drug to them. And that's how they could abuse the slaves because these pharaohs couldn't build enough stuff. They couldn't build enough. So they were using abusing people to build more and more and more. And he says, now when you have your own land, you don't want to become like them. I'm going to teach you how not to become like them. Because for them, money became a drug. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? By the way, if you're visiting today, we don't talk about money every Sunday. Please don't, get, uh, don't turn, turn it off right now. This is, this is just good biblical uh, foundational knowledge about how to keep money from becoming uh, something that you obsess over, money becoming a drug for you. So there, there are five ways that he taught them so that money would not become an intoxicating power over them. He was teaching them divine generosity. And the first thing that God teaches them, we're going to talk about tithing, first fruits, harvesting, offerings, and Sabbath. Those are the five things. The first thing he tells them and teaches them is this idea of tithing. Now, that's God's method of generosity to the people. He said, here is, here is a way. Now, people are fuzzy about tithing. People... Well, tithing, what is tithing? Tithing simply means, in the original Hebrew and the original Greek, tenth. It means a tenth. Tithe, tenth. That's what it means. People sometimes will say, you know, well, I tithe $10 a week to the church. Well, if that were true, then that would mean your income was $100 a week. And if you're, if you're making $100 a week, $10 a week would be a tithe to you. But if you are making more than that, $10 a week isn't a tithe. It's an offering. And that's fine, but don't call it a tithe. Tithing, however, in the Old Testament involved more than just 10%. For Israel, the 10% was just the starting place. People say, well, you know, is tithing, you know, Jesus, uh, you know, didn't teach tithing. That's an Old Testament concept. Well, well no, but Jesus taught um, sacrifice everything you have and give it to the poor. Come follow me. So you can follow Jesus' plan, or we can go to the Old Testament, all right? Let's, <laughs> let's go back there for now, okay? And then we'll work up to Jesus' plan <laughs> later, all right? So, so, but Israel didn't have just one tithe. There are three different kinds of tithes. 
Follow me as we look. And if you have your smartphone, um, pull that out. Follow the, uh, the, the Riverside app. If you haven't downloaded that, get that and look at the live event. Now, let me just say this. If you don't have a smartphone and you can't afford it, don't go out and get one, please. <laughs> don't get one just because we're talking about it in church. You know, I, I think you can follow along just as well the old-fashioned way. Um, and uh, so let's, let's do that, all right? So here we go. The first tithe mentioned in Numbers chapter 18, verse 21. God says, as for the tribe of Levi, your relatives, I will compensate them for their service in the tabernacle. Instead of an allotment for land, I will give them the tithes from the entire land of Israel. What does that mean? Well, remember there were 12 tribes of Israel, and when they went into the promised land, they, became, they went from slaves who were set free to becoming landowners. And the land was divided up according to their tribes. And so every tribe had a plot of land that they were able to settle on and have for themselves and to use for their purposes, except for the Levites. The the tribe of Levi was to spread evenly throughout all the lands, and their role among the people was to facilitate their worship, facilitate the celebration of God, and to help the people remember who the God was that delivered them and how they were to worship that God. So the Levites were not going to have land of their own from which they could have an income and provide for themselves. Therefore, out of all the land, they were to take a tithe and give it to the Levites for them to be able to survive. That's that first tithe. Um, then there was the second tithe, and that's uh, Deuteronomy fourteen twenty-two. God says, Be sure to set aside a tenth of all your fields that all your fields produce each year. And listen to this. Eat the tithe of your grain, new wine, and olive oil, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks in the presence of the Lord your God at the place that he will choose as a dwelling for his name so that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always. Now think about that. Take a tithe and go to church and eat it and celebrate with it. Use it for yourself in the presence of God. Take what you have gained, bring it to the temple, and there, and before God, with all your family and all your friends, have a great holiday. Celebrate and revere God who provided this for you. He didn't say, take and give it away. Take it and use it for yourself when you come to celebrate at the temple, at the tabernacle. And, uh, and then he goes on, and in that passage he talks about if you have to travel a long distance and it's too heavy for you to carry your, your, the tithe of your grain or your, or your flocks and bring it with you, then, then exchange it for silver and gold. And when you come to Jerusalem, buy what you need there so that you can celebrate. In fact, it says in verse 26 there of Deuteronomy 14, use the silver to buy whatever you like. Cattle, sheep, wine, or other fermented drink, or anything you wish. Then you and your household shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice. Wow. Now, I I didn't read that verse in the Pentecostal church I grew up in, by the way, in terms of the fermented drink there. I don't think it says, just go out there and get drunk for Jesus' sake. That's not what the Bible's talking about here, please. Um, But I want you to note that what he's saying here is it is good to celebrate the goodness of God 
when you come together and take the stuff that God has provided for you and set it aside and as an act of worship, just celebrate God with that tithe. Paul wrote later on, Each of you should give whatever you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. I want you to connect your giving to God with rejoicing, with celebration, with joy. And, you know, the worst way for you to think about tithing is, oh, I got to tithe. Or if I were to preach tithing, you better tithe or else God's going to get you if you don't tithe. That is never the way that God intended tithing to be viewed. It was to be viewed as an act of celebration and worship that we can use for the good things that God wants us to enjoy and to be able to invest it into others. So how can you connect joy and celebration with your giving to God? Well, I think what you need to do is just step back and look around you. Step back on a Sunday morning and and observe. Observe the the people that are just being filled with God's spirit as they worship in his presence and say, I get to be a part of that. I get to help make that happen. Take a look at the children as as they gladly run off to their classes. And, uh, And then afterwards, as they come out with whatever craft they made that day and talking about the lessons that they learned and say, I get to help make that happen. I get to be a part of these kids being imprinted with the good stories of God's word, teaching them how, God, how much God loves them and how they can be a, 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 a good person to grow up and, and reflect God to the world around them. I get to be a part of that. Listen to the testimonies of the people that are getting baptized and hear how God has changed their life through the ministries of the church. Let that be a part of how that makes you happy when you give because I'm giving something to come together with God's family and we rejoice over the goodness of God. Take note of the fact that there are people in the middle of nowhere in Kenya today that are getting medical care because we built and supplied or we put out there a dispensary for people that had no opportunity to get medications and now they do because we did that. Take note of the children in Cambodia that are getting taught and getting a home in the orphanages and are being being uh, equipped to face the world as adults as they grow up and say we get to be a part of that. Take note of the, the thousands of children in Haiti and Philippines and other places around the world that through Convoy of Hope through which we partner are being fed every day and getting an education say I get to be a part of that when you give your tithe you bring it together to have a great celebration because of God's goodness to you and you get to also benefit from it personally yourself so when I think of how I'm giving to God makes all of this happen it fills me up it frees me from the compulsion to think that money is a drug for me, that I just got to have more for myself. It frees me of that and says, I can invest it as a tool for the glory and the goodness of God. And there was a third tithe, and this was called the poor tithe, and it was collected once a year, every three years, only every three years. And, and uh, Deuteronomy 14 says, talks about this. It says, at the end of every third year, bring the entire tithe of that year's harvest and store it in the nearest town and give it to the Levites who will receive no allotment of land among you as well as to the aliens or the foreigners or the immigrants living among you the orphans and the widows in your town so they can eat and be satisfied 
Then the Lord your God will bless you in all your work. So there it is. Once every three years, all the tithes went to the poor that lived among them in the land. Now, I just want to be real upfront with you. This was a theocracy. In other words, the government was the church. The church was the government. And, and what this was was a way for them to collect taxes, but they called them tithes. And you might say, well, why should I tithe? Because the government takes my money and does these things for me. Well, by the three tithes that we mentioned there, if you took, talk about them, it was at least 20 to, to 25% of what they brought in was given away as tithes for the care of the poor, the widows, the weak, the Levites, and those who were immigrants in their land. Say, so, well, that's why we have a tax system in our, gov- in, in our country to be able to partly not provide just for defense and to make, you know, build, land, build roads and do all the infrastructure, but also to care for the weakest, for the elderly, for the poor, for the weak, for the children, for those who don't have. That's part of what our tax structure is. But the problem is we cannot depend upon the government to do that for what the church should be responsible There are so many who fall through the cracks, and there are so many ways in which we need to step up as the church. The reason the government has to do all of that is because the church failed to do its job. And so now the government has to take that over. We as a church need to see that it is our role and our responsibility to step up and do this also. But back then, you see, this was their form of taxation. It was really not a tax. It was willingly give to God as celebrating the goodness of God. I do it cheerfully. I don't do it like I do when I sign my, my check, uh, you know, on April 15th or if I'm early enough to do it before that. You know, it's that I hate to give this to the government. You know, I give it to God because God is going to use it for God's glory and God's purposes. Just a little aside there. So, you know, just some practical questions. People say, should I tithe off my gross or should I tithe off the net? Well, that depends if you want God to bless the net or the gross in your life. That's up to you. <laughs> and I'm sure there's some here saying, man, I can't begin to think of giving 10%. I, I'm underwater right now. How could I ever give more to the church or more to God? And I, I just want to encourage you to begin now to make up your mind to work toward that and, and start by adding 1% of what you give, just 1%, and then step it up and step it up. Because I, I believe that 10% really should be the baseline of our giving. That's what I, what I understand, not legalistically, not or else you're going to go to burn in hell forever if you don't. That's not the idea. There's no threat here. It's, it's what we get to do because we are... Believers in the most generous God ever, who has blessed us with everything. So, tithing. Then, then we talked about the first fruits generosity. This was the second way God was teaching them to use money as a tool and not to let it become a drug in their life. Exodus twenty three nineteen. Bring the best of the first fruits of your soil to the house of the Lord your God. First fruits. This was a really fun time of the year for them. It was early in the spring when the when the when the first fruits of their crops began to prop through the ground. You see, when you live in an agricultural economy, when you live off the land, those first fruits are really important. 
when you see that the crops are coming up, for you, it's like, yes, we're going to have a harvest this year. Yes, it's going to come in this year. Because you live year to year when you live off the land like that. You don't have a safety net. So for them, when the first fruits come up, what they were to do was to find the best, the nicest, and take some of that, put it on a reed, take it with them, and have a parade, and take it to the temple, and celebrate, and say to God, God... Thank you for giving this to me. You gave this to me, so I'm going to give it back to you, God. That's the first fruits. It's the best of the first that God gives you, and I'm going to give it to God and thank him for it. And that would bring so much joy to the people. They would have these big parades as they brought the first fruits. Deuteronomy 26 talks about how they were to bring this to the priest. And in the, in the ceremony of declaring their first fruits, they were to repeat this saying, Deuteronomy 26.5 says, at one point in the ceremony, um, one of the people was to say, you were to say that, that my father, talking about Father Abraham, my father Abraham was a wandering Aramean, and he went down into Egypt with a few people, and he lived there and became a great nation. But the Egyptians mistreated us and made us suffer. And then we cried out to the Lord, and the Lord heard our voice, and he brought us to this place, and he gave us this land. And now I bring the first fruits of the soil that you, Lord, have given to me. I think that that liturgy is so therapeutic for the people to be able to say that. God, my grandpa was a wandering Arab man. He didn't have a home to call his own. But now I don't have to wander anymore. I have this land. God, I have this blessing. And God, I'm going to take the best of the first fruits that you give to me, and I'm going to give it back to you because I now have been blessed by God. I'm no longer a slave. I'm no longer in bondage. You heard my cry. And let's honor God with our first fruits. That's what that's about. So that, that was so ingrained in the people's mind that when Paul was searching for words to describe the heart of God's generosity, in raising Jesus in the passage in, in Corinthians, on Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 15, about the resurrection, he says, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And what the point of that is, is that, that he's saying, As Jesus rose out of the grave, it was as if God tied a reed around him and said, here he is. He's the first of all who are going to be raised from the grave. He's the first of all that's going to come following after him. God gave us his best. God gave us himself. He emptied himself and became a servant and, 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 and became obedient and even died on the cross. But God raised him up as the first fruits. And now as he was raised out of the grave, we too know that we shall follow after him. So that is the first fruit fruits. Jesus is the first fruit for us. Now the opposite of the first fruits is the last fruits. And unfortunately, I think a lot of people give what's left over to God. The end of the month, after they've paid their bills, after they've got the fun that they got and they had the entertainment that they wanted to have. and if, if there's anything left over and if the Spirit leads them, they might put whatever's left over what does that say to God when we give God the leftovers versus giving God the first fruits? And that's why I believe that your, your, your giving to God should come first. And I challenge you, I, a lot more people are doing this, and I'm so thankful for those that are doing it. 
How many of you carry a checkbook anymore? People don't carry checkbooks. I mean, a lot of us don't anymore. I mean, you might, but you don't write a lot of checks anymore. A lot of people are using electronic giving. I challenge you. Teresa and I do this, so it just comes out automatically. I don't even have to think about it. I know that that's going to God. And every month, whenever I go over and balance my checkbook, and I hope you do that, hope you review your finances, and you look at that, then you can say, thank you, God, that I am able to rejoice in giving to you first. All right? So God taught the people divine generosity with tithes, with first fruits. And then he goes on and he talks about the, uh, the end of the year, the harvest generosity. Notice some of the rules he puts around harvesting in, in Leviticus 19. He says, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Don't go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner or the poor and the immigrant. I, for I am the Lord your God. In other words, he said, you know, at the end of the year when it's harvest time, leave a little extra for others. Go ahead and harvest what you can for yourself out of the middle, but leave the borders of your fields for those that don't have land of their own to harvest. Leave some. And if you drop some, don't pick it up. Let somebody else pick up the scraps because they don't know where their next meal is coming from. You're going to be storing up a lot for yourself. Why don't you let those stick around for those that don't have the ability to store up for themselves? Now, food cycles are different depending upon a person's social status. If you were a farmer and you had land, then you could harvest your, 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 your crops and store enough to be able to provide for your family and your household for a whole year. So your food cycle was for a year. Now, if you were a local person that was poor, didn't have land, and uh, you were part of the community, your food cycle was for a week because people would give to you uh, on a regular basis so that you would have enough perhaps to get you and your family, if, if you were not single, by for a week. But if you were of the poorest of the poor, then you would, like you were a traveler, an immigrant, a foreigner, then you needed your daily allotment, your daily bread. Do you remember when Jesus taught his disciples to pray? And he said, pray, give us this day our daily bread. Some scholars say that he used that phrase because he was connecting with the poorest of the poor of the land. Do you remember Jesus when he and his disciples got in trouble because they were picking grain and eating on the Sabbath? And uh, it wasn't that they were picking grain from somebody's crop because they they traveled around. He preached and traveled around. He was an itinerant rabbi. It wasn't the fact that they picked grain. It was the fact that they picked it on the Sabbath. They weren't in trouble for taking the grain from somebody's field. That was the common practice. But what does that say about Jesus' social status in his day and his followers? They were of the poorest of the poor. Now, one of the reasons the early church honored the poor so strikingly is because Jesus did connect so deeply with the poor Paul says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Now, 
Is there virtue in being poor? I, I don't think so necessarily. But does God care for the poor? You bet your life he does. Does God care for the wealthy? Yes, you bet your life he does. And he doesn't want the wealthy to become addicted to money. He cares about the wealthy so much that he doesn't want it to become a drug for them. And he wants them to be able to use it as a tool for God. So what ways can you honor the poor? I've heard stories of people who, uh, 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 in fact, John Ortberg was talking about this. And he was with a friend in the South one day and they went to a waffle shop or waffle house, waffle house. Anybody gone to a waffle house? You know, great greasy breakfast, you know, good stuff, cheap food, waffle house. And they were there and... Um, the, the, the waitress, you know, was just a lady who didn't have a whole lot, single mother. And so when the friend went to, uh, to, to pay, um, all he had was a big bill, and he just left the big bill and walked away. It's one way. One way. Leave a big tip. Be a good tipper. Can I just say that? Christians, Christians, be good tippers. Be good tippers. The restaurants, hotels, you know what? You can help people by doing that. Uh, tip generously, give an anonymous gift to somebody that you know can need it. Cover a repair cost for somebody. You know, when you take your stuff to Goodwill, take some stuff that people can really use. <laughs> <laughs> Don't just throw your junk in there. All right. So we see God's heart of generosity being imprinted on the hearts of, of God's people because generosity is the antidote when money becomes a drug. So it, it helps break that addiction. Two other quick things we see throughout in the Old Testament. There are many, many passages about the, the offerings, the kinds of sacrifices and offerings. And Leviticus makes this long, long uh, you know, list of the ways and types of offerings people should give for this occasion, for that occasion, for that need. And he summarizes it all up with the, with the words, these then are the regulations for the burnt offerings, grain offerings, sin offerings, guilt offerings, ordination offerings, and the fellowship offerings. So on and on and on. All these different types of offerings people were to make. You think we're bad. Um, but uh, they, they did it all the time. So, so it, you know, this was almost as complex as the tax codes that we live in, you know, the kinds of offerings that they were to give. But you know what? I think that simply there are three types of givers. I've taught this before. There are three types of givers. There are people that are spontaneous givers, right? We do uh, coins for kids, you know. Hey, I'm going to decide because I was told here's a need and I'm going to save my coins up and hopefully in two weeks you can bring your bottles back and we can tally them up and celebrate the goodness of God because we are encouraging people to give up pocket change for Lent. If you've not done that, it's not too late. Put them in any kind of jar and bring them in. That would be great. Spontaneous givers, you know, for a need they see and they reply. Then there is the strategic giver. And the strategic giver is the person who sets ahead of time in their mind, this is what I'm going to do, and maybe that's a tithe or a percentage. I'm going to give this amount, and I'm going to do it strategically. I'm going to have it taken out of my account, automatic pay or check every month, whatever I do, that's strategic. 
Then there are the sacrificial givers, and those are those, and I think most people, if they get their finances in order, can easily give 10%. I really believe that most people, when you get your finances in order, you can live well below the, the, the way that God has provided for us in, in our society. doesn't mean you can't buy more. doesn't mean you could have more, no doubt. But I believe if we live rightly and we live modestly, we can, we can afford that. So, 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 so the sacrificial giver, those that go beyond that, that baseline 10%, they give when it, when it means that they have to give up something else in order to give. We do one day to feed the world. We say, let's take one day's wages. Let's give that up for people that don't have jobs that are living in extreme poverty and help feed them, help clothe them, help provide emergency relief for them. So are you a spontaneous giver? You give as the Spirit leads you whenever the need comes. Are you a strategic giver where you plan and you, and you know what you're going to do and you live within the margin of what God provides for you and the living of level, the level that you live on? Are you a sacrificial giver where you have to choose to live a little bit less in order to give more to God? One other way of teaching them generosity was the whole Sabbath idea. This is the last thing. Sabbath. Work for six days, and then on the seventh day, do no work. For God created the earth in six days, and on the seventh day, God rested. So a Sabbath was a way of teaching generosity because on the Sabbath, you couldn't earn an income. Right? Why did we do away with the blue laws? Well, we don't want to support one religion over another. Nah, we wanted to make more money. That's why. It's another day to make a buck. That's why we don't have the blue laws anymore. It's not because we're a pluralistic nation. So, so, so this was part of it. You give up a day's wage to be able to rest and celebrate and honor God. Then there was the Sabbath year. Every seventh year, they were to let the land rest. So you couldn't earn the crops that could be grown on that land. Well, you know, farmers found out over the years that that not only was a way for them to give, you know, up an income, it really did help the land to recover from the harvesting. Now we rotate crops, uh, but you do got to give the land a rest. And that was one of the principles that God taught them. Uh, but one of the other things we don't talk about in that Sabbath year was that, and it was unprecedented in the ancient world, they would give up, they would give their freed slaves money so that they could make a living. They would free them, and then they would give them money so that they could live. Can you imagine that? Every seventh year, you freed your slaves and gave them an income to live on. So when a person became a slave, you knew that it was no more than a seven-year sentence. Isn't that interesting? And then they were freed. And then there was the, sep- there was the ju- year of Jubilee. It was the seventh, seventh year. So after 49 years, there was the year of Jubilee. And in the year of Jubilee, all debts were forgiven and all the land was returned to its original owners. Talk about redistribution of wealth. That was huge. And so all the land was given back to the original owners and all the debts were canceled. It was a year of unbelievable generosity. Did you know that when Jesus came on the scene in Luke chapter 4 and he opened the scroll of Isaiah and then he talked about this is, you know, I'm here to set the captives free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He was talking about now is the year of Jubilee. I have come and I have come to set you free. 
I have come to pour out God's generosity on you. I have come to give you a clean slate so that you can start all over again. Talk about generosity. Jesus' gift to us was the greatest gift of generosity the world has ever known. And that's what Jesus said. I have come to give you a brand new start, to open the blinded eyes, to set the captives free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Thank God for God's generosity. How could I do anything but be generous when I serve such a generous God? How can I not be able to honor God with the blessings that God gave me when I know that God honored me so much by giving his best for me? You know when you know you have enough? It's when you have God who is enough. And when you have God who is enough for you, and God says, you know what, you are enough for me that I gave my life for you, then you live with this sense of abundance because you have more than the richest person on earth who does not know God. You have more because of God in your life who says, you were enough that I gave my life for you. You were enough that I came to earth for you. And now I give you all that I have for you. That gives me the sense of enough. And because of that, with all that God has blessed me, I want to honor God and bless God. Would you bow your heads with me, please? The Bible says, do not put your hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but hope in God, who is more than enough. God, you have been so generous to us. I, I've been so blessed by you, God. For all the blessings you have given us, we thank you, God. And with all that we are and all that we have, as you teach us, we offer ourselves completely to you as a living sacrifice. And with the money that you give us, that, that you've given us the capability of gaining that we've received from others, whatever it is, God, that we have, it really is all yours. So may we learn to be generous. Help us to see money as a tool to be used to glorify God and to benefit God's people. Forgive us because we become addicted to it as a drug. Forgive us because it is something that causes us to fall and do so many crazy things. Forgive us, God, for not ever being satisfied and always saying we got to have more, we got to have more. Help us, God, to believe that you, God, are enough for us and to honor you with, with, with and, and the God who's so generous. May we be generous with what you've given us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Riverside Community Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.riversideconnect.org.